turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we are going to pick up where we left off. And so if you'll remember, if you want to glance up to your, uh, to your Bible or, or on your app on your phone and take a look at and kind of refresh your memory, what we just celebrated with this profound revelation that the, at the heart of the gospel, the gospel is the announcement that God has, that, that the world has been reconciled to God through the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and what that passage celebrates is this vision that goes beyond our, our capacity to even take time to imagine it and understand it, which is this, God has reconciled any everything to himself. And that's where we ended. So that's where Paul has ended this letter. And so he is taking, he is moving from this magnificent, almost difficult to comprehend announcement that the world is reconciled to God. And now he begins to flesh out the reality of that gospel in both his life and ministry and in the life and ministry and the life of the Colossians. And so we're gonna pick up on what is actually one of the more controversial texts in the New Testament. So it'll be kind of fun this morning. Um, it says this in, in verse 24 through 26, which we're really only going to look at verse 24 this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And we're going to talk about that mystery that uh, Paul uh, is celebrating has now been revealed next week. This week, I want to focus on this phrase that Paul writes in verse 24. He says, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. Now, I'm going to tell you what uh, the, the position I'm taking and that I am encouraging you to consider this morning, and then we'll talk about why I feel that this is um, the proper approach to this passage. But I will say, I'll just give you a quick preview. I, I, I didn't talk a lot about this. I mean, obviously, we didn't coordinate the worship service this morning. Erskine was here to minister to the youth and to continue to do so this morning by ministering to the youth and the rest of the body in worship. Oh, there we go. Thank you, wonderful people. Oh, I can see you all. Um, and so, um, uh, what was that? Oh, but... Having the video about the persecuted church is perfect for dealing with this passage here this morning. Because the persecuted church gives us a hint to what Paul might be talking about when he says, I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. Now, this, I will tell you, there's a lot of ink that has been, that have been, that have, that has been um, utilized, some might say in some cases wasted, on men adding their thoughts to what this is all about. Uh, the literature is so big, in fact, I almost decided to pull a fast one and read past it real quick and just talk about the topic of next week's sermon. And I, I hope nobody noticed. But, I, but the more I, I meditated on it, the more I thought, no, we really need to enter into this because I found myself deeply comforted in the process of thinking through this phrase. Essentially what Paul is communicating is that he experiences joy when he suffers on behalf of others. 
Now, every single word in that phrase is important because as we all know, we can suffer for many, many reasons. And most of my suffering, if I am honest and as I reflect on it, are just the consequences of my own willfulness, rebellion, and stupidity, or sometimes ignorance, and that's a little softer category. But a lot of the suffering in my life is generated by Artie Favre. Um, but, but what Paul is celebrating, there is another kind of suffering. And here's the thing. Most of us have encountered it. We just don't always have language to attach to it. So sometimes we misinterpret it. But what Paul is celebrating is a specific kind of suffering. He experiences joy when he suffers on behalf of others. The Greek word for rejoice has a direct connection with the Greek word for grace. The Greek word for joy has a direct connection with the Greek word for grace. Suffering on behalf of others is a means of experiencing God's grace for ourselves. Suffering on behalf of others is a ordained means for God's grace to be experienced for those who are actually doing the suffering. Uh, the, the, the theological church word for this is sacrament. Most of us grew up in traditions that didn't use the word sacrament a lot. Uh, first row is probably an exception. If you happen to know what the word sacrament means, would you raise your hands? Oh, okay, there we go. Let's look at about a third, and two of the two-thirds of us are sitting in ignorance. But that's okay, because we're all about to be enlightened. The word sacrament simply means a visible sign of an inward grace, especially one of the solemn Christian rites considered to have been instituted by Jesus. Look at this, to symbolize or confer grace, to symbolize or confer or be a means through which we experience grace. Uh, if you've come from more litur liturgical traditions, you're probably familiar with many of the sacraments of the church. Most of us here grew up in the Bible Belt in, evangelical, in, the, in evangelicalism, and essentially we, uh, we, we acknowledge probably two sacraments that we're most familiar with. Uh, number one sacrament being baptism. It's, a, it's an outward symbol of an inward grace that has happened. And the other sacrament perhaps being marriage. Again, it's an outward symbol of an inward spiritual unity that the Holy Spirit has brought to two people. But all it's saying is this. There's God's grace that comes to us, but it doesn't come to us like just kind of like dust floaties in your house. There are specific ways that we can, we can engage in that puts us in the position of expanding our experience of God's grace. Hopefully one of them is gathering together in worship. But these means of grace are called sacraments. Now what Paul is saying here then is that sacrificial service is a sacrament. It is one of the primary ways that we can experience the joy of Jesus. One of the primary ways we actually experience the joy of Jesus is when we are doing ministry not for Jesus, but with Jesus. And because we are doing ministry with Jesus, we suffer with him and we find this odd, um, seemingly contradictory experience where we might be sorrowful yet full of joy. And Paul says that's why that sacrificial service becomes a sacrament. So the question is, what exactly might it mean to complete in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body? Because again, some of the theories that people have come up with 
When you finish reading them, it's as if Christ's work was insufficient. And if you read that at first glance, it almost reads that way. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions almost sounds like his afflictions might not have been sufficient. That is not what I believe it means. I think that theologically, that's an easy answer. No, the work of Christ was sufficient for all of humanity. But, uh, but, but Paul wrote it for some reason. Well, here's what I think I want us to consider this morning. And it touches us in very deep and personal ways. The sufferings of Christ are presented to the world through the sufferings of those who are following his way. The sufferings of Christ are presented to the world through the sufferings of those who are following his way. The suffering love of Christ for people is experienced in real time by our suffering love for people. And in really, it's not, it's not a heavy distinction. Because although Christ is the head, we are his, we are his body. So the suffering love of Christ for people is experienced in real time by our suffering love for people. Now, the first place that I would, that I would encourage you to turn when you're trying to understand scripture that seems odd, out of place, or obscure. And, and hopefully we're at the point in evangelicalism that we are no longer pretending like some of this stuff isn't really weird, because it is. It comes across as contradictory, it perplexes us, it's confusing. If that's how you feel when you study the scriptures, you're in good company, that's how we've all felt for 2,000 years. That's why we work hard to try to interpret and understand what it means. But when you come across a scripture that is odd or obscure, one of the healthiest principles for coming to a point of understanding is you first look to scripture that isn't that obscure. So so the scripture that's really clear ought to set the tone for the approach for how we understand scripture that is less clear. Does that make sense? So uh, one of the best places to turn when we're trying to understand a passage isn't a commentary. It isn't Uh, It isn't running to or looking up on YouTube one of the most premier expositors of of, of scriptures in the United States. That's fine if you want to go to those places. I supplement my study with those things. But the first place to turn is scripture itself. With a humble heart, open to the present teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is always with you and resides in the sanctuary of your soul. And so we start there. Holy Spirit, open my eyes, help me understand, and what does the, what's the rest of Scripture speak to it? How does the rest of Scripture approach this topic? Well, let's turn to Philippians 2, or it'll be on the overhead. Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30. Now, let me set this up. The scenario is this. The, uh, the church in Philippi wanted to send a gift to Paul. May have been money, it may have been clothes, it may have been some scrolls, books, parchment papers, we don't know exactly, but they were bringing a gift of support to Paul. But, so they collected the gift, but somehow that gift that was collected and secured in Philippi had to make it to Paul. The means through which the Philippians' gift got experienced by Paul was through Epaphroditus. He was a member of the church in Philippi who took the gift physically and brought it to Paul. That was the means through which the gift that originated 
from another source got to its intended recipient. So this is what Paul says, but I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Does my voice not sound like there was a youth weekend this weekend? Um, verse 27, indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I'm very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. What kind of people? The people who are willing to suffer in order to bring the grace of God to others the kind of people we just saw images of in the video, but it's also the kind of people that I'm looking at in this beautiful congregation this morning. Because, verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life, here it is, to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Now, the church in Philippi sent a gift to Paul through Epaphroditus. And Paul sums up his ministry as saying that he made up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Now, in the original phrase, in the original, the phrase completing what was lacking in your service to me is almost the same as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in Colossians 1:24. Therefore, if we look at this verse that's less obscure, we might get some hints to... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Got a little distracted. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting getting older, isn't it? I just watched someone grimace in pain just because they switched from one leg to the other. And so, I'm sorry, it just kind of caught me off guard and made me laugh because I'm also a child at heart. Um, but Jesus has good things to say about this. Anyway, back to what I was about to say. I get it, though. I get it. I'm nearly 50 now, and now I hurt, and I don't know why. Um, but uh, back to the scriptures. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, so, so we, we take this, this passage in Philippians. It's really not that obscure. So if we look at the Philippians passage and we go, passage and go, oh, I can kind of see what this is, what he's saying here, then maybe that helps us and equips us and then go back to this other passage that has brought a lot of confusion to the body of Christ and say, huh, this holds some insight for what this passage might mean as well. And so the original completing what was lacking is very similar to, to filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So the question becomes, how did Epaphroditus fill up what was lacking in their service. Well, Martin Vincent, in his commentary on the epistle to the Philippians and Philemon, says this. The gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking and what would have been grateful to Paul and to the church alike was the church's presentation or delivery or bringing forth and manifesting that gift of this offering in person. 
And that's very important for our faith because remember that one of the linchpin foundational theological assumptions for our faith is is that salvation is experienced to humanity because of the in-person delivery that God has put in place, also known as the incarnation, right? All right, so this was impossible. The whole church couldn't come to Paul. And Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. Well, what what might Marty mean by that? Simply this, this idea, what was lacking is the personal presentation of the gift in the flesh, up close and personal and touchable. It was the personal presentation, or another way we could say it is this. What was lacking in in their service to him was the incarnational manifestation of the gift. That's what was lacking. It wasn't the source, substance of the gift. That was sufficient. What was lacking is the in-person, personal presentation or incarnational manifestation of that gift. Christ has accomplished the reconciliation of the world through his life, death, and resurrection. He's been given, he has been given as a gift to the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life through knowing him. His gift is complete and sufficient and it lacks nothing. What is lacking in every single generation and geography is the representing of this gift to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, that's a pretty lofty statement. Let's say it another way. What is lacking is the representing of the gift of the incarnated life of Christ to your family, to your community, to your workplace, to your enemies. That is what might be lacking. The way the Spirit completes this lack is by representing Christ's afflictions to the world by calling his people who are the tangible expression of his life to carry them to their circle of influence and concern. Let that set for just a second. Keep it on the screen. Let's read it one more time. The way the Spirit completes this lack is by representing Christ's afflictions to the world by calling his people who are the tangible expression of his life to carry them to their circle of influence and concern. That is all that is lacking in each new generation of humanity. So when we bring, when we carry them, uh, when we carry this, uh, these afflictions to our circle of influence, and in doing that, the followers of Jesus fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by representing them to others who do not yet understand their infinite worth to God. This is challenging for us.
Let me confess to you my sin, brothers and sisters, so that you can pray for me. And in good manip manipulative preacher fashion, so you can more accessible, you, you can maybe access the question of whether or not you've also committed the same sin that I've committed. I used to think that a life of prayer was there so that I could ask the Spirit to go do the things that God was calling me to do in my flesh. You go fix that, God. Lord, I pray for them. They're hurting. Will you go comfort them? Lord, they're hungry. Would you go feed them? Lord, there is violence. Would you work for peace? And then I got really frustrated because either my prayers were so generic, I had no idea if I was just doing an exercise in some sort of mental um, conversation with myself, or when things didn't work out the way I was summoning God to go take care of, I would get bitter and frustrated and say prayer doesn't work. And then it dawned on me one day when the Holy Spirit created some space to say, when I asked, why don't you answer my prayer? And the answer was, because I have empowered you to answer it yourself. I have called you to be the expression of that comfort, of that food, of that working for peace, of that expression of love. You are the one in the flesh. You are my body. You are the one. Your prayer life is for the equipping of your own courage and tenacity to actually rise up and go do the work. It is not meant to be a substitution for doing the work. Now, again, you may not have ever used prayer that way, but I will confess to you for decades, that's how I approach prayer. And that revelation has brought about a transformation. You see, as was the experience of Jesus and Paul, this representing will often bring suffering from the words and actions of those who have not yet fully apprehended the ever-abundant and gratuitous grace of God. The church in Philippi, I'm sorry, I missed my cue. Ministry affliction through which, ministry of affliction is, the, is one of the means through which we deepen our intimacy with Christ. We join him in the fellowship of his sufferings and others are introduced to the living presence of Christ which is, and, and this, this uh, sentiment is in other scriptures, it's particularly from the letters of Paul. So let's look at two other examples. Second Corinthians, they're both in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, Corinthians chapter one, verse five. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. Now we have this treasure in clay jars 
so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And there's a part of my flesh that just wants to play at ministry at the place of least resistance. But I've learned that is not where the Spirit's calling me. He is calling me to the hard place. If you are uncertain about God's next step for your life, one thing is to consider this piece of wisdom. My friends, the obstacle is the way. We, we want to build our lives in avoiding the obstacles. The obstacle is the way. As I press into that suffering, I discover that Jesus was already there to meet me there. And he empowers me to endure it. And then he comforts me. And then I get it. Now, this inward comfort from, the, from Jesus is what I have to bring to comfort others. Because sometimes, my friends, my words are not enough. My theological explanations, they are not a love. In fact, in the face of severe suffering, a simplistic theological answer is just silly. But if I can sit down and say, I've been there, brother, sister, this is the comfort that the Spirit has deposited in me, and now I want to share it with you. In hopes that one day, in hopes that it will comfort you, and then one day you'll possess it to share it with someone else. But I don't get that experience if I've avoid the suffering. As long as I resist the obstacle, then I rob myself of that invitation to deeper intimacy. The obstacle is not the warning. It is not the trick of the enemy. It is the way forward. It's what God the Spirit compels us to. Sometimes I use this quote, and I don't always like to use it because people sometimes misunderstand it, but I love it. One of the women that have been a, one of the most profound spiritual influences on my life is a woman by the name of Jackie Pollinger. Now, I have only met her once, twice, I've spoken with her two times, and they were very brief. Now, she didn't waste words at all. Uh, it was very brief. Jackie Pullinger uh, decided she wanted to go into missionary work when she was a young lady. She was, she was British. I think she was, I mean, she was in her teens or maybe just at 20. I can't remember exactly. She was not older than 20, and she was not equipped, and and uh, none of the missionary societies would wanted to use her. Now, I don't think that she's a model for ministry. I think that there's a place where we ought to be sending competent missionaries out onto the field. 
learn a skill, learn how to build things, learn how to engineer things, learn how to utilize medicine, and then go be a tangible expression of God's grace. I think that that is the norm, and that's what we should promote and encourage. But at the same time, if you read church history and the scriptures, you realize that God gets a lot of pleasure about utilizing the ones that we don't expect. So Jackie went through the means she wanted to be equipped, but none of the missionary societies would let her in. They wouldn't train her. I don't know if it was because her youth or because of her gender, but they wouldn't train her. And so she still felt this tug on her heart so she talked to a pastor, and it's unclear whether or not this pastor was giving actual advice or was being a little bit, just saying something in the moment that he didn't necessarily think she would take him up on. But he said, maybe you should just get a ticket to a slow boat to China and pray at every port. That's what she did. She got a ticket, slow boat to China. It was gonna end in China. And so she prayed at every single port, never felt the nudge of the Spirit. On her way into the port of China, she actually thought, in her mind, oh, this was a test of faith. Ah, no suffering at the missionary fields. God was just trying to bring out my willingness, and I have passed my test. Except for when the boat docked in China, the Spirit said, here's where you need to get off. And so she got off the boat and just followed where the Spirit led. Had no contacts, had very little money. And at that time, there was a place in Hong Kong that was a five-acre piece of land. Was it five acres or 10? Anybody remember? Anyway, we'll say five because it works better for the story. Um, uh, you never, a preacher never lets facts get in the way of a good illustration. Um, so... It was called the walled city because of some kind of miscommunication in the way the legal documents were written. This five acres wasn't owned by any country. It, it, there were no laws. Now, it was said at a particular date, somewhere in the early 90s, that that land was gonna be moved over to the Chinese government and they would have it, but that date, this was back in the 60s. It hadn't happened yet. And so it was a haven for gangs, criminal activity, prostitution. They could escape to the walled city. I mean, this is really interesting stuff. You should do the Google this afternoon because they would pirate in illegal electricity. They had this raw plumbing system, basically, where there was sewage out in the streets. But if you were committed, if you committed a crime, you could live your days in the walled city and the law couldn't touch you. That's where God sent this blonde 20-year-old British girl. And she began to work with the heroin addicts there. Now, I'm gonna pause there, go look it up, read the book, Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Uh, it, will, it will be with your soul until the day you die if you take the time to read it. Um, but all that to say is this, I deeply honor this woman. And uh, uh, she said this quote that I have lived with for many, many years now, and it's this. The principle of the gospel is this. The gospel always brings life to the receiver and death to the giver. The gospel brings life to the receiver and death to the giver. Now, I would follow that up with when a Christian experiences death, 
it's because they're on their way to the experience of resurrection life. It doesn't end in death. That's why, to me, this quote is optimistic. But I haven't explained that before, and people have been really bummed out by that quote. Because I do think it would be fair to say death to the giver and then resurrection life to the giver. But nonetheless, the principle holds in a very powerful way. And the reason why this quote means so much to me is that I don't read it necessarily as literal. Although, as we know, and as Erskine bore witness to, and as we saw clips in the video, certainly it is literal for some people. But here's the problem when we create two tiers of zealous Christians, those who go and those who stay. This, my friends, is a mistake. Because even those who stay are still called to be the ones who go. It's just they go right in their circle of influence. That's where they're sent. We're all sent. It's just some of us change zip codes and some of us do not. And so the reason why this is so powerful is because it doesn't always happen literally. But I promise you, this week, you will have an opportunity to represent the gospel to someone. By that, I mean the love and reconciliation of God seen through Jesus. And when you do, you're going to have to make a choice. Do you die to yourself and share that grace? Or do you keep it for yourself to maintain your life? And it sometimes will feel that dramatic. It really will. Especially with the assignments I'm going to give you this week, which I'm ready to hurry up and get to. So in conclusion, as we grow, mature, and become more skillful in keeping in step with the Spirit, He will increasingly manifest the love of Christ in our hearts. The love of Christ that is increasing in our hearts is characterized by two realities, joy and suffering. The suffering love of Christ for people is experienced in our suffering love for people. If we suffer because of our love and service to others, that suffering becomes a means of God's grace that produces joy in our hearts. Therefore, we can be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Now, as we close, why can suffering on behalf of others be joy a joyful experience? Because it sounds a little masochistic, doesn't it? Well, number one, because the Christ life in us has already suffered. The Christ life in us has and is suffering for others so that he can share his love with them. Number two, because we are in Christ, we suffered with him and he suffers with us. Thus, our suffering is a way of experiencing our deep connection to Jesus, the living Christ. And in the presence of Jesus, there is fullness, joy. We were in him, and now he is in us. That is the pattern celebrated in the New Testament epistles. Number three, we were created to be our brother's keeper by practically extending the love of God to them. And when we live in agreement with our nature in Christ, we are at peace. Even if it's uncomfortable, the peace that I can no longer bear is living in contradiction to my new reconciled, redeemed, righteous nature in Christ. I don't want to live in opposition to that anymore. And I don't want to live my life as though that's a goal that I'm trying to attain. 
I want to live from it as a gift that God has given me freely. And so even when it causes difficulty, we still have peace. So as the team would come up to close us in worship this morning, let's take a moment to pray about responding. The best time to learn to love with the love of Christ is when you are most tempted with something less than the love of Christ. The best time to learn to love with the love of Christ is when you are most tempted to react with something less than the love of Christ. And those temptations, or we might say opportunities, abound because other humans present them to us all the time. So what I want to do is we talked about some big ideas this morning, but discipleship doesn't happen by contemplating big ideas. It doesn't happen just because we discuss them over coffee. It doesn't happen just because we say we believe them. Discipleship gets worked up in real time in really small, undramatic steps. To quote Bill Murray's Bob Wiley, in What About Bob? I'm doing the work. I'm baby-stepping. I'm not a slacker. I like that. I go back to it a lot. Because faithfulness to Christ comes down to what we're willing to do in the baby steps. That's where you experience the life of Christ. It comes to us not, we celebrate the testimonies of the way grace of God comes to us in macro crisis, but the truth is the grace and presence of Christ comes to us in several moments of micro crisis all the time. It's in those baby steps. So here's what I suggest or encourage you to do in the power of the Spirit this week. Number one, look for an opportunity this week to take the time to truly understand someone before you try to make them understand you. Maybe the thing that makes you mad is someone who has a different political philosophy than you. Reach out in friendship and listen. Not just to their convictions, but the storied context from which those, those convictions were cultivated. Hear their story. Now, you don't have to ever come to a point of agreement, but your job is to listen until you truly empath empathetically understand where they're coming from. Or maybe the thing that gripes you is someone who pursues alternative lifestyles or struggles with or lives alternative sexualities. Befriend them. Have a meal. Sit across the table. Listen to their story until you yourself are convinced that you empathetically understand where they're coming from and what cultivated this particular set of choices for them. Again, I'm not saying you have to agree with it. I'm not saying you have to justify it. All I'm challenging you to do is befriend and listen until you understand. And then at least allow that understanding to inform the way you communicate your convictions. Ooh, that's pretty tough. All right, we've got one more. This is a fun one. If you're married, your job 
Maybe thus saith the Lord. I don't know. I'm not charismatic. I'm not quite that charismatic anymore. Your job this week is to lose an argument. I want you to lose an argument because, but it, it, it matters why. Now, I lose arguments all the time, but it's like this. Okay, Jen, you win. Whatever you say, you won here. Now, can I go back to sleep? I'm not talking about losing that way. That's not what I mean. I want you to so thoroughly understand and affirm your partner's point of view that you can affirm its legitimacy even if you still disagree. You have to lose the argument. And the reason why you have to lose it is because you took time to be quiet, to not make your case, but you were committed in the power of the Spirit to so thoroughly empathize and listen and understand their point of view that you can affirm its legitimacy even if, according to your narrative, you still don't agree with it. This will be fun. Everybody stand up. Now, would the prayer team please come forward? If you are taking this challenge seriously, but you're already dreading it, guess what? We have... Oh, this morning we have seasoned people here. They've been married, I don't know how long, to my left and right. I should know with my parents, but I'm not gonna try to do the math and offend them. Um, but if you're taking this seriously, but already in your gut you're resisting, reach out to community and say, brothers and sisters, would you pray for me? There's something in my heart that feels the tug of the spirit in what we said this morning, but I am so blocked up that I don't trust or have affection for my partner anymore at all. Will you pray for me? Will you pray that the Spirit empowers me to embrace my death so that my marriage might taste resurrection life?